All right, on this episode, we are talking to Francisco from Tequila Ocho Mezcal Vago. Uh, if you haven't heard of Tequila Ocho, you've been living under the rock somewhere, um, and you better get out and start drinking. Uh, great brand, uh, Mezcal Vago has been around, uh, I think he says eight, nine years. Well, you got to listen uh, and hear the story. So Francisco has been around for a bit. Uh, taking these brands to the next level. So this is a lot of fun. Um, the makers of these uh, amazing, amazing agave spirits are deep, deep rooted in the Mexican history. So you're going to enjoy this one. If you are a connoisseur, if you're a purist, uh, this episode is for you. So enjoy. See you on the episode. Uh, welcome to the Arte Agave podcast. I'm here with Francisco. Um, excited, my friend. Um, I've got a bottle of tequila ocho sitting on my shelf um, you guys have been part of our Arte Agave event in the past, Tequila Ocho with Mezcal Vago. Um, the one thing I wanted to ask you right away is anytime I mention Tequila Ocho to people, consumers, bartenders, it's always in everyone's top, usually top one, top <laughs> three. It's just one of those brands that everyone's like, yep, yep, uh, I like that one. I, I follow a bunch of tequila boards on Facebook. Everyone's always mentioning Tequila Ocho. What's the deal, man? Why is it so special? Why does everybody love it? What's different between this tequila and other tequilas out there? Um, well, there's a few different reasons. The first one that comes to mind is uh, the people who started the brand, right? Uh, Carlos Camarena and Tomas Estes. Um, they are, are two of a kind, if you will. They are just um, they, the absolute simpaticos and the, and the care and the love that they had for each other. Unfortunately, Tomas passed away um, last year. And that was a big shock to everybody. Um, but if you were lucky enough to ever either talk to him or, or got really lucky and actually spend time around him, um, you immediately felt the love that just kind of radiated from this man. Um, and that extended into Tequila Ocho itself and Mexico and Agave and the Camarena family. And the sense of love and family that exists in that brand, I think, is something that is very difficult, if at all possible, um, to replicate in any other brand. So I think that's first and foremost what really stands out. Um, obviously, you know, Carlos is just an absolute icon and master of what he does, you know, also producing um, Tesoro and Tapatio, which have always been two of my other favorite tequilas as well. Yeah. But that combination of Tomas's love and personality and just radiance and 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 Carlos is is just kind of just stoic, masterful handle on what he does um, and what he's cranking out of that distillery is just really, really magical, you know, and to be able to combine those two things. And if you've ever spent, again, any time around either one of those two gentlemen, you immediately know what I mean. Uh, and that just kind of radiates down, you know, the people who are lucky enough to work with the brand, whether it was when it, back when it was working with with uh, like through the Bon Vivants and stuff like that. Or if you have spent any time around Tomas's son, Jesse, that same love and enthusiasm just really radiates. And that is for me is what always bound me to the brand before I worked for with Ocho, before I worked with Vago, when I was just working behind the bar. Those were the things that really connected me to that brand particularly. And then obviously, and if, if you want to get down to the nitty gritty of it, you know, that approach of single field and showing and embracing the diversity that exists in a category, category being tequila, that otherwise has really been kind of homogenized over time. Mm. You really, really see 
the the little bit of diversity of flavor profiles that you can pick out from that category just based on the single field concept, right? Which is something that people are kind of starting to replicate now. But definitely at the time in 2007, 2008, when it launched, it was absolutely singular in its approach. And that just really blew people's minds and opened up people to how expressive tequila can be. So you have on one hand, the human factor in Carlos and Tomas, and on, on the more kind of uh, uh, just on the ground factor of what the tequila is and what sets it apart um, from other tequilas in the market, I think is, is, is those two things combined, the human and the science of it just are just absolutely incredible. Makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of people trying to make a lot of tequila today. Um, and I know those gentlemen have been doing it for quite a while and doing it the right way. Now that you've mentioned it, I'm getting pretty thirsty myself. So I, I don't know if you're drinking today, um, but I'm definitely going to pour myself a little bit. I did pour a little bit here in my, in my hikara. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> what, what do you got in there? What are you drinking? Uh, this is actually, I actually don't quite know. It was something from <laughs> my, uh, it was something from my home bottles that I've brought from Oaxaca and that the tape has since scratched off. I know it's something from Theo Ray, just based on kind of how earthy and acidic it smells. So um, from Sola de Vega. So that's that's uh, what I have. Something from Theo Ray. It definitely smells and tastes like Theo Ray. I just can't quite put my finger on what. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Salute, my friend. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the one I love. Um, uh, so listen, man, obviously we talked about Ocho real quick. Tell me a little bit about Mezcal Vago, but also give me a little, little backstory on yourself, um, okay. how you got involved with the brand. I mean, we didn't really give our listeners who you are and what you're doing. So little background on you, what you've been up to, how you got involved with Mezcal Vago and give me a little history of, uh, Mezcal Vago and what's going on there. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Just in case a comment comes that nobody's expecting or something, let's get the brand stuff out of the way <laughs> and then we can get to the personal stuff. Um, so Vago uh, was originally a concept that launched in 2012 when the tequila or excuse me, the mezcal category was still not quite in its infancy, but definitely maybe it was a toddler um, yeah. at that point, you know, you had already started to see some of the stuff, um, you know, several different expressions from, from Ron and Delma Gay, uh, some Alipu stuff was starting to pop up and then also some some kind of more cocktail driven mezcals that were kind of just espadine focused. Um, Sombra, for example, and that kind of stuff were starting to pop up on the market. And when I met Judah, who's the co-founder of Vago, that was also in 2012. That's when I was in Austin. He had just made his first trip from Oaxaca. He was living in Oaxaca at the time to Texas to sell, to sell, um, to sell Vago. It was his very first market visit with his very first distributor. And that's when I first made the connection. So I've basically known these guys since almost day one, um, of the brand's history, but the brand goes back to probably, I think about 2000 and actually around the time that Ocho was launched, 2007, 2008, uh, Judah was at that time, nowhere related to the agave industry. He was really just kind of being a ski bum in, in Colorado, which is kind of the way he came up was, uh, you know, he would work all winter at the ski resorts. He would save up a bunch of money, go on these surf trips during the summer, save just enough money for a plane ticket back home, come back, work the next winter. And then the next summer, go hit some other surf destination. Right. So that's kind of how he got through his twenties and early thirties. That's also where he met his business partner, Dylan Sloan. They launched the brand uh, in 2012. And it was on one of these surf trips to Mexico that Judah found himself in Oaxaca. 
He was at a little surf town called Chicawa, which is about an hour and a half north of Puerto Escondido, which is a very famous surf break in Oaxaca. Um, but about an hour and a half north, there's a really beautiful kind of lagoon area that's actually a nature preserve called Lagunas de Chacawa. And there's a kind of under the radar surf spot there for mainly like Oaxacan locals and stuff like that. And it was there that Judah was surfing, ended up having a really bad ear infection, had to go to the local clinic there on the beach. And if you've ever been to rural Mexico, you probably know there aren't really doctor's offices. There's kind of these municipal clinics that are staffed by nurses and stuff during the week. And then maybe once or twice a week, a doctor will pass through, see the more serious cases and then go to the next village. Because in Mexico, when you go to school to be a nurse or a doctor, you have to spend a couple years in these rural clinics to pay back your government education subsidy, mm -hmm. right? So it was in this town that Judah stumbled into this little medical clinic met his nurse, Valentina, who had just graduated from nursing school in Oaxaca. And you can probably kind of see where this story is going. <laughs> Judah fell in love pretty much at first sight. Uh, the way he explains it is that it was a very hard lesson because he learned that it doesn't really work both ways. Uh, Valentina was actually already engaged to somebody else at the time. Oh boy. Thought he was just some crazy American guy who didn't know where the hell he was or what the heck he was doing. And just kind of being a typical brash American, right? So sure <laughs> enough, living true to, true to form, Judah spent the whole summer trying to get Valentina to go on a date with him. Her, her fiance was living off in, in Oaxaca city at the time. And finally Judah's persistence and, and just kind of hardheadedness, Judah uh, Valentina said, yes, they ended up going on a date and they ended up dating. So <laughs> the way that, the way that Judah tells that story is that he was going to challenge this guy to a fist fight so that he could throw the fight. And then the guy could go back to Oaxaca city with a little bit of his dignity intact. And sure enough, one way or another, whether it was on purpose or not, nobody really knows, but Judah did get his butt kicked, and he ended up staying in this little town, and he and Valentina ended up getting married, and it just so happens that her father was a fifth-generation mezcal producer from a tiny little village called Candelaria Yegole, about three hours inland from the coast. So eventually, he and uh, Valentina opened up a little surf shack, just like sand floor, palapa roof, ceviche, fish tacos. And they would drive the three hours into the mountains to buy mezcal from Macalino, Valentina's father, and sell it out of the restaurant. And eventually they started meeting people who actually came to the beach because they heard about this place that had this really kick-ass mezcal. And that was where they first got the idea. Um, the first time that Judah actually met Macalino for the very first time was when he traveled to Yegole to ask permission to marry Valentina. So they spent wow. the afternoon in his front yard drinking mezcal. And eventually, Aquilino said, hey, you know what? You two are, 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 you two are crazy, first of all, but you're adults, <laughs> and we'll be here. We love you, and we'll be here to support you guys. And that was actually over some elote, which has kind of become the family recipe, mezcal mm -hmm. for Bago. And um, so, yeah, they ran the restaurant for a couple of years. Eventually, it wasn't making enough money because they were going to have a little daughter. And Aquilino was always a big vision kind of guy, very, very smart, had a lot of pride and saw the potential in what he was producing and had been pushing Judah to export. So that's how they actually launched the brand in 2012. Uh, it was wow. just kind of Judah, I would say, kind of forced gumped his way into this really incredible family of mezcal producers. Uh, and there he found himself. And through a lot of hard work and determination and persistence, they launched the brand in 2012 uh, with Aquilino's kind of vision. And that's what we've been doing ever since. You know, unfortunately, we lost Aquilino in 2019. Mm. Uh, very unexpectedly, uh, actually in June, it will be two years. And, uh, now his sons, Valentina's brothers, Temo and Mateo are really carrying on that legacy. So at Bago, we actually work with now five producers, um, uh, Temo and Mateo, Acalino's sons. 
and Theo Rey, who is an extended family member, as well as Joel Barriga, who's also an extended family member of ours. And then we also work with a gentleman named Emigio Jaquin, who does some really incredible mezcal produced around Milan. Theo Rey is in Sola de Vega, which is a very famous town for clay pot produced mezcal. And Joel Barriga and the Garcia family live a little bit southeast, kind of towards an area called Tehuantepec. And that is kind of just really beautiful, high tone, bright, very floral, herbal kind of desert. What I always think of as being hot, arid, desert climate mezcal, which for me tends to be really bright and expressive and floral and really high tone. Whereas stuff from like Sola de Vega, where it's a little more tropical, tends to be a little bit earthier and fuller and a little bit more savory. So that's the kind of long story of how Vago got started and what the that's brand's all about. That's an awesome story, though. Long, long or not. Uh, I love cool stories like that. I love I love organic stories instead of it just being like we had money and then we went and got a brand. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I think fine, that's one, but, you know. I think that's one of the things that also set Vago apart, much like Ocho in that way. And that's why the two brands yeah. have always been very simpatico. We've always had a healthy respect for each other, is because the backstory of Vago is so singular and organic, like you said, and it's really about the people and relationships yeah. and family. Um, rather than somebody who had a vision of starting a mezcal brand, went to Mexico or fell in love with Mexico and then had mezcal, really Judah just kind of through love found his way into this family. And that was really the impetus for the brand. And that's where so much of what we do comes from is from love and from family. That's really cool. So how, how did, how did they rope you into it? And then, you know, give, give me a little bit about you, man. We're the hospitality industry for a while. What's yeah, so I'm talking to you right now from Southern Arizona, from Tucson, about 45 minutes north of the border with Mexico, um, which is where I'm originally from. Uh, I met Judah in 2011 or 2012, like I said, in Austin, Texas, which is where I was working yep. as a bartender. And then I, between that and working for Vago, I actually got a job with a really good friend of mine named Bobby Hugel, who runs a series of really incredible bars in Houston, Texas. Yep. And he opened one of the largest and really one of the first mezcal programs in uh, the United States. And it has since closed, unfortunately, after the pandemic. Mm. Um, but in that moment in time, it was really kind of, from my experience, the most incredible combination of a very education-focused uh, agave spirits program mixed with a high-volume cocktail bar. On the mm. weekends, there was like 300 people in there wow. on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you might get 30 people through the course of the night, right? So you yep. went from having these really long, in-depth, one-hour, two-hour tasting sessions with guests to just cranking out margaritas and Coronas on Fridays <laughs> and Saturday nights. So it was really a cool dichotomy of a bar, yeah. um, and I'm really going to miss it. But that's how I first really got to know Vago, first really got to know Ocho, was working behind that bar in Houston, putting that in front of people, learning as much as I can so that I can educate my guests about it. And then that was when I really got to know Judah very well because Bobby was kind enough to send me on a trip to Mexico to visit with uh, Judah and his family who were still living in Oaxaca at the time. And that's when I first met Aquilino and I first met Theo Ray. So that was probably mm -hmm. about 2013, 2014. At that time, Vago was only working with two producers. It launched in 2012 with Aquilino and Theo Ray. And then in 2015, we started working with Joel, uh, excuse me, with Emigdio. In 2016, we started working with Joel. But at that time, it was only the two original Mescalettos. So I got to spend a lot of time with them. And then in 2015, the brand grew. Judah had, was starting his family, so it was his business partner, Dylan. They couldn't really do the traveling that they needed to do. So they gave me a call, 
and I had Bobby's blessing, and he was really stoked for me to take this job. So um, in 2015, October, October 2015, I went down to Mexico with Judah and his wife, Valentina, spent one night in the city. Judah loaded us all up in the truck, drove us out to the middle of the desert in Oaxaca, dumped us off at Acalino's place, and he kept going off to the coast to go surfing for a week. So he left me in the middle of the, in the middle of Diego Le with no cell phone service, no internet, no nothing, and I just worked my ass off for two weeks with Acalino. Um, he came, scooped us up, uh, took me over to Sol de Vega, spent another two weeks with Dio Ray, uh, did the same thing. So I spent a whole month with the two producers that we were working with, just really wow. immersing myself in the process, and that's where I first really really got into into what it is to produce this stuff and uh i've been traveling around talking to people and trying to get them hyped on the culture in mexico and, and the spirit category and the brand ever since wow that's i mean i mean had had you been to mexico before like with mezcal producers like you did for those not that far years? man up until like that up, yeah up until that point that only my only trip to point of production for Mexican spirits was a trip that I took in college to go for the app, which is like one of the yeah. large, you know, tourist destinations for tequila visits uh, in Jalisco. And that was pretty much it. You know, I grew up crossing the border, going to the beaches in, in Sonora and stuff like that. A um, couple spring break trips here and there, uh, spent a summer in Mazalan, but that was pretty much it. So get, I mean, I mean, spending that much time there, that's, I mean, that's really awesome. I mean, talk about deep diving into it and like no cell phone service. You're like, this is it. This is what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> like, tell me about that experience, man. Like, what is it like? I mean, I think people, you know, this category, I mean, tequila has been rising forever. I mean, as you mentioned, yeah. people are starting to get to know mezcal. And they think it's funny talking to some consumers because they're like, oh, this new thing, mezcal. And they sort of don't really understand how the history of it and, and how long it's been around. Um, so give, give me, what is it like being there and seeing these families and seeing these farmers and seeing these people like doing this thing? Like what, what is it like day to day? Um, and get, give maybe people a, a snapshot of like really what's happening in, in making mezcal. Because like, again, I think the American consumer back in the day just thought it was like, Oh, this whatever stuff with a worm in it from, from Mexico, you know, they don't really understand it. They're starting to now, but getting there and seeing it like you did, what was that like? And at first it was, I mean, it was overwhelming, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a lot to take in. And also it was kind of a very, uh, I guess, I don't know if isolated experience is the mm. best word, but it was very focused on the production, right? Because yeah. I spent maybe a night in Oaxaca city, maybe two nights, went out to the middle of the mountains, came back, spent one night in the town and then spent another two weeks out in the mountains. Right. So it wasn't necessarily a complete vision of like what the culture around agave distillates is in Mexico writ large. It was very granular in the production side of things, which I'm very, very grateful for um, because it really gave me a very healthy appreciation for how remote it is. It gave me a healthy appreciation for how much work it is. It gave me a very healthy appreciation for kind of the day-to-day -day lives of these guys. Like mm -hmm. I haven't spent so much time with them. And maybe I'm thinking of this in the totality of my experience with the families over the last six years. And I think that's feeding into it a little bit. I might not have been as understanding of what I'm talking about right now as I was back then, but it was a lot at one time. And I feel really, really grateful for it. Um, you know, I really got to forge a really strong relationship with the producers 
and getting to know them as people, I think that's probably mm. what I pulled out of it more, I think, yeah. than, than having a complete appreciation for like mezcal and this and that, because you can spend your whole life as somebody who is from Oaxaca, but has lived their life in Oaxaca City, and you would know 8,000 times more than I do, but you still wouldn't know a fraction of what these guys know, right? Yeah. So less about actual production and really getting to know them as people, I think really empowered me to do my job and talk about these things in a little bit of a different way than maybe most people do. Mm-hmm. Um, than a lot of other people who might take brand work jobs and have like a week long visit, seeing five, six, seven different palenques, hanging out in Oaxaca City. I think it 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 bound me a little. I hope I'd like to think a little bit more closely to the families of Theo Ray and Acalino, and since then, Amigdio and Howell, which I'm eternally grateful for. And I think it gave me much more of a of a familial context for what agave spirits are, yeah. and that's what always has really pushed me and driven me. And hopefully, I think kind of putting that lens on it is something I can kind of lend to the conversation a little bit more than people typically hear. Um, although conversely, you know, you're starting to see things like documentary films that are popping up and stuff like that, that tend to talk a lot about family and, and kind of the role that these spirits play in the family. So I'm really glad that that message is getting out there a lot more uh, um, as well. But it was just so incredible for me to be down there, see these environments. That's what really blew me yeah, away too, yeah. was being in Sol de Vega, it was a microclimate that I'd never been in before. It was like a mixture of, of, of conifer pine forests and tropical vegetation, right? It was this environment that I'd never been in before. Um, being in Yegole on the other side of things where it's so hot and so dry and so arid for most of the year. But at the same time, being from Southern Arizona, it was somewhat reminiscent. A lot of the plants are actually related to each other down there. Um, and then since then, I've, given in, I've, I've dove, in, dove into the physical history of kind of uh, of what those two places are and seeing the connections and things like that it was from a scientific point of view of botany and things like that it was really really cool um and i've never really been to like a river town before and that was really uh, eye-opening for me as well to see how connected these villages are to the river and just the role that it plays and how important it is not just to the day-to-day life but to the cycles and the seasons and things like that it was really really incredible we're just I think gave me a really awesome perspective on the broader context of things. I have so much to learn still, and I hope to continue learning. But from, you know, I felt like I went from zero to a hundred, you know, in in the blink of an eye. Uh, And it was just, I don't know. It was awesome. It was really, really incredible. Do do you think, I mean, you mentioned, I mean, you've learned a lot. Do you think the, um, do you think the American consumer is starting to understand what, like mezcal is, you know, do you think they're, they get it? Because I mean, let's, let's be honest, this category is just, it's going through the roof. Yeah. Um, do you think the American consumer is starting to understand like uh, how this is produced and why it's produced and why, you know, it's, it's more expensive than some stuff. Like, do you yeah. think they're getting it or there's just still like, Hey, we're hoping for another celebrity, something to come out. Like what, what do you think the consumers are, you know, if, if you're doing events and stuff like that, what do you think the consumer feedback is on understanding literally what this category mezcal is i think this is gonna sound kind of weird i think they're understanding it as much as they want to understand Mm. i think there's a large i think there's a large swath of consumers who want to hear these stories because they want talking points to then go back and tell their friends about right so that they can they want to be smart (laughs) not necessarily smart but especially given the especially in the last few years like with the pandemic and everything, I think there's been this, the same thing as like people who like when, when the pandemic hit, I was living 
um, just across the river from New York City, right? And there was swaths of people who left the city to go out into the hills, right? And I think it's very much a, a, a sense of that, of going back to these places. But I think, you know, alternatively, you can also truly dive in and get into the, like, socioeconomics of why campesino life is so different from city life in Mexico, right? Which also feeds very heavily into these spirits, right? Mm. And I think that's really important too. And and now there's these conversations about representation, which, um, you know, about like, you know, I'm very aware of my place in the world of being somebody who is from the borderlands is, you know, I call myself a brown person, um, whatever, Hispanic, Latino, whatever, you know, and my role in, I'm not from Oaxaca. I did not come up as a mezcal, you know, a mezcal producing family or anything like that. So I try and be very cognizant of my role in the space of talking about these things, right? Yeah. But at the same time, some people, it's a little bit more than they want to hear. And then there's also mm-hmm. some people who do want to dive into that kind of thing, right? So it really kind of depends. But from a, from a concept of how it's produced, I definitely think that people are starting to understand that a little bit more. Cool. Um, through events like yours, like Arte Agave, Mexico in a Bottle, things like that, where you have these tasting uh, events, which to varying degrees, um, you know, are putting uh, kind of are putting, you know, are, are picking and choosing kind of who they're opening it up to, to a certain extent, uh, which is good. I think having yeah. a certain amount of standards and who you're going to let represent these categories is great. So I think that kind of fluctuates with with I, th- I think the level of people's interest and their knowledge fluctuates with what they have access to. Like yeah. I haven't seen a lot of Terramana, you know, tasting tables out, really talking to, to people about the process. And um, the people that are doing that, that are doing the work of educating consumers, tend to be the brands that are doing things that we would quote unquote call the right way, right? Mm. Um, so from an actual production process, I think it's great. But to give a real foundational experience to the culture, foundational knowledge of the cultural context, it's a little bit more difficult and you have to do a little bit more work to, to, yeah. to get that side of it, which also I think is what we all love about it, right? It's so called, it's so intertwined with the culture of Mexico and rural Mexico. Um, but you can't just sip a mezcal, talk to somebody at table and think that, you know, those kind of dynamics, it takes a little bit more work than that. And some people are into it and want to, and I love it. And also some people, like we said, it's a little bit more than they want, um, which yeah. is also totally okay. At least they're getting, at least they're getting a window into how diverse the flavor profiles of agave spirits can be of the fact that there's more than two states that are producing agave spirits right which if that's all they want to know okay that's cool too i want to know a lot more but at least we're giving them as much as they want and they have a lot more access to that knowledge which i think is so great and i think we've come a long way from even five or six years ago when i was first started doing this um it's been really really incredible you know uh, although I will say as more brands start to enter the marketplace and this is going to tie into what we said at the beginning about what separates Vago and Ocho apart and some other brands is, you know, what's going to differentiate these stories of production methods or the families producing these spirits, right? So that people can actually differentiate and it all kind of doesn't come become one single palette with a bunch of different colors that are all part of the same kind of grouping, right? Where right. it all starts to blend together. I think it's really important to find ways to separate these these cultures, these states, these families, so that people have a deeper appreciation for how diverse the category can be. Not just from a, you know, oh, how many different ways are to distill or ferment, but 
how many yep. different cultures and groups are producing these spirits because then they're going to love it even more i think yeah and with that kind of being said like i don't know how in tune you are with people down in mexico or these producers um you know, this uh, just I hear more stories of how agave is going to, you know, they're passing it's passing vodka, it's passing bourbon it's going to it's just going through the roof. Like are people down in Mexico, are these 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 families, these farmers, um, are they enjoying this? Are they part of the ride? Do you think they're getting their share? You know, I'm always I'm always asking everyone I know, you know, what's the state of agave? What's the state of Mexico? Yeah, you know, everyone's saying sustainability, you know, et cetera. You know, I just you always hear these like horror stories of, 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 of these brands coming in and people down in Mexico are not getting their fair share. These farmers are not getting their fair share. Yeah. You know, any insight that you have on what's happening in Mexico state of state of agave is, is the people down there. They're like, yeah, it's great. Or, or is it, is it still like, yeah, it's okay, but it could be better. Um, any insight to, to the people down there. It can always be better. It can always be better. Whether we're, whether we're talking about people, somebody from the perspective of, oh, I wish I was making more money. You could always make more money. Or, oh, I think we're are more sustainable. You can always find more sustainable ways, right? So regardless of what your perspective is, it can always be better from whatever your perspective is. Right. Right? Never, right. No, there, 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 um, there is no perfect solution, right? So, um, you know, that being said, it runs the gamut. You know, I think a lot of the people who are actually – at the level of production, are they making more money than they would be without agave spirits? Yes. Are they still being taken advantage of depending on who they're working with or, you know, who's buying from them, etc. to varying degrees? Yeah. A hundred percent because there is no, just because of the way that international trade and supply chains are set up, there is no way for them to get a 100% fair shake, right? To get these products to market, somebody's always going to have to be taking a little bit of a cut in order to do that part of the work to get yeah. them to market. How we make it as equitable as we can, that's always a challenge. And depending on what brand you are and, and how you're doing it, uh, it is going to affect how much that producer is getting back at the end of the day, right? From an ecological perspective, it's getting harder and harder to see how this is going to be a sustainable category. Um, you know, I think we have to do the best that we can. I'm really proud of the work that we've always done with Vago, you know, since I started working, since before I started working with the brand, we were always really focused on putting, planting more plants than we're put than we're taking out of the ground, planting trees to offset the, uh, the wood that we're collecting. Right. Um, uh, we just put in a water filtration system for all the output, the, the, the liquid output from, from the stills. Uh, but there's always ways to do things better. And, you know, it is changing the economy in Oaxaca. Absolutely. Uh, I'm not from, again, I'm not from there. I don't live there. Um, I can't say if it's for the better or for the worse, because that's for the people at that, in, in that place to say, yeah. um, and even they wouldn't agree. Right. I think there's people who would say that it is. And there's people who would say that, it, that, it, that there isn't, there's a lot of people that I interact with or see that say that as there's more international influence and more um, influx as happens around the world, right? Time after time is that people say that a place is losing a sense of itself, but at the same time, you know, I have seen Oaxaca change and it's always been one of the poorest States in Mexico. Mm. Um, so there is definitely more money flowing into that state, whether or not it's going to the right places. I think again, depend that depends on, on your perspective, hundred percent. And it's difficult, you know, I don't envy the consumer for trying to navigate that, that, 
that landscape. It's very, yeah. very difficult. I always say it really depends on a sense of trust of who you're listening to, uh, selling the spirits, whether it be a brand rep or yeah. a, uh, a liquor store owner or a bar manager, what have you. You know, you have to really, or, or yourselves, right? Putting together events like Arte Agave. Yeah. What, you know, whether you intend to or not, based on who you work with, what products you're putting in front of people, just naturally there's a narrative that's going to come along with that. And you just kind of got to trust that the, the people that you're listening to are the ones that are doing things or helping to affect the changes that you want to see in, in this landscape. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting. I always tell people, cause I mean, when they come to my events, they're like, what should we do? I'm like, just, I mean, the one thing you got, I'm just ask questions. Like you can literally just yeah. ask questions. And once you get feedback from certain brands, you can take that to other brands and ask them the same questions, you know, cause when we started Arte Agave, we did have some of the big brands there. And everyone's like, Oh, you got this brand here and that brand there. And I was like, you know, just ask some of the other brands, their process and what they're doing, and then take that to your other brands, your big brands. And you're going to find out some are actually doing it correctly. Some mm -hmm. might not be, you know, so I always, I always tell everyone, it's like, you know, you just, you got to do a little bit of your own homework, but ask those specific questions and take that to other brands and ask that the same thing too. Because a lot of people are like, oh, I didn't know you could add additives or you could add sugars or agaves or colors. And I'm like, yeah, it's not like bourbon. It's, you know, not, it's a little more of the wild, wild west there where things can be added to what you're drinking. And I think a lot of consumers had no clue that that yeah. was even a thing. They thought it was like bourbon where you're like, no, that's, there's just nothing added. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little more loosey goosey on that. So, you know, anyway, I always tell people just ask those specific questions of one brand. Once you, once you like a brand, take all that knowledge and bring it to another brand and see, and see what they're doing. Yeah. You know, and, and when I was having this conversation about additives recently with somebody else, um, because we were with somebody and they were asking if it was like a certified, no additive, uh, no additive tequila and things like that. Um, and yeah, we could, we could put it, we could put a, a label on it. We could tell people it is or it isn't, but are they really going to trust what we say that we have to be able to justify and prove that what we're saying, or at least earn the trust of people that what we're saying is what's in the bottle. Right. Um, and putting that in front of people. And I think that goes back to the trust concept of it hundred percent, you know, and the additive thing is definitely something that's a very hot topic right now. And a lot yeah. of and, and the other thing too, is that a lot of people ask these questions, but I'm not hundred percent sure that they know what these questions mean too. Right. Like we get it all the time with, with Mezcal, like, Oh, what's the non number on this bottle of Mezcal? And well, I can tell you that non number, but it's not really going to mean what you think it means because it doesn't mean that you know who's producing it, right? We right. work with four different producers. Everything's bottled under the same non number, and that non number is tied to our office, which is in Oaxaca City, right? It's not the same as with tequila, and people they key in on things, and and not it's not their fault. I encourage them, I, and and I'm so glad to see them taking an interest and in trying to ask the right questions again. It just takes more work on at, at, at our level, right? The people yeah. who are responsible for kind of educating people to inform them of that. And I, you know, I think people sometimes think I'm a little, little bit of a buzzkill because I, 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 it could be all fun and, and loud music and shit if we want it to, sorry, uh, and loud music if we, want, if we want it to be, but then it's going to lead again to this kind of like very hollow category that lacks any of the underlying cultural significance that we really embrace about it. And I think it's the same thing with any spirit that's produced in kind of a developing economy in that if you want to enjoy these things, you have to do a little bit more work to sustain the things that you love about them. Yep. Because if you don't dive in a little bit, then it's all going to become one 
homogeneous category that we're just going to, everything's going to taste the same. Everything's going to be produced the same way because it's the most efficient and it's the cheapest with the least amount of things to think about. And, you know, that's why it does take a little bit more work, but I think the payoff is great because we have these really incredible, really beautiful spirits with these really incredible stories behind them and these incredible people behind them and these cultures and locations. And it's just really remarkable. And, you know, I think that's something that is worth putting that work in for. Yeah. Yeah. I agree, man. So are you able to, are you, with, with the brand, I mean, obviously pandemic probably slowed things down, but are you, do you travel a lot? Are you doing a lot of events outside of your city and state or do you get to, do you get to travel? It's starting to, it's yeah. starting to happen again. I mean, we were supposed to record this last week, I think, but I think I had to reschedule because I yeah. had to, I had to take a very unexpected trip for work. Um, so it is starting to, uh, yeah. you know, we are, uh, I'm very fortunate in that I live here in Tucson and we have a really incredible event called the Agave Heritage Festival, which happens oh. at the end of April, kind of early May, right before Cinco de Mayo. And, um, you know, we're talking to a lot of really incredible people to come out to, uh, to participate in the event. I don't want to put anybody on the hook yet, so I won't mention who, but it's a lot of people that I interact with, that I work with, that I've always really admired that are going to be coming out. Um, so that'll be a great event. Mexico in a bottle is getting started again. Right. So I'll be yeah, traveling along awesome. to that. Um, yep. your guys' events as well. Um, uh, the Arte Agave events are going to be happening. So it is starting to, you know, tales of the cocktail, uh, which is the big cocktail event is hybrid this year. So it is going to have some in-person components. So we'll be traveling for that. So it is starting to happen. Uh, uh, definitely the yeah. really, and, but that's around kind of larger scale events. The other side of, what, of my travel is also just kind of based on day-to-day -day stuff. We're working with our distributors, working with our local people, whether it be in Texas or whether it be in Chicago or, or California, what have you. That is a little bit slower getting, getting going again. The larger events are starting to happen, yep. and then eventually I think it will trickle down to the more kind of uh, the more rote kind of, you know, three, four days in the middle of the week, end of the week in a city, and then go to the next city and do kind of some smaller scale events, dinners consumer tastings and, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Is there any particular cities that are, um, you know, where, where's, where's tequila and mezcal hot these days? Is, is, I mean, is, is there, is there certain cities that pop up in your brain? Like, Oh, this category is just going through the roof right now. Um, or, you know, just what, what, what are the, what are the states or cities that you know of that's where tequila and mezcal is hot right now? Yeah. Um, so I would say cities, uh, let's say cities that aren't New York or LA, right? Right. There's just, there's, there's so much energy in those cities that pretty much all things are going to be very, very going off and, and at the forefront and moving more than they are in other cities just by nature. Um, but, um, what was I going to say Texas right now? And I think a lot of that is somewhat driven by the buzz around Sotol and what's going on um, for better or worse with, 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 uh, with spirits producers north of the border, right? So that is yeah. generating a lot of conversation around Sotol and by, by association agave spirits, whether people are keyed into what that conversation is, is or not specifically, who knows? But I think it's trickling down to the broader category. So it's perking people's ears up a little bit. But um, Austin has always been really, really pushing Mezcal, even back when I was living there in 2011, 2012. So, um, uh, Dallas as well. Uh, you know, Almas Rotas is a really, really great, great Mezcal bar run by some really great friends of mine. Uh, you, 
that market in Texas has always, always been pushing. Chicago as well has always been one of my favorite yep. uh, uh, markets to drink mezcal in. It, it kind of ebbs and flows a little bit. A couple of the mezcal programs shut down a few years ago, actually pre-pandemic, um, and have not come back. But there's newer places opening up um, as well, for sure. DC, DC for sure has a really nice. There's some really incredible chefs doing some really yeah. great Mexican food there, and I think that is helping people embrace the agave spirits conversation. Uh, unfortunately, here in Arizona, we've always been a little bit behind. What I always, I always felt like Arizona per capita mm -hmm. should be drinking more agave right. spirits than anybody. Really, I mean, we have. Really, we have some of the longest documented history of agave cultivation. Like we're we're talking thousands of years here, so it just seems very ingrained in the culture and, and the environment yeah. of Arizona. We're starting finally to come around, and I think the Agave Heritage Festival has been a really big part of that as well. And I'm really really grateful for it. Um, Colorado has always been a really strong market mm -hmm. as well. There's this weird, you know, Dylan and Judah, the you know co-founders of Vago, are originally from Colorado. There's another brand that has since started that is based in Colorado. Um, a few of our friends who are also importing, and they also run um, a bar called Palenque in Littleton, Colorado, Brian Rossi. He's a really cool guy. He really pushes a guy of spirits in, in the Denver area as well. So Colorado has actually been a really strong market for agave spirits in general. Um, there's been Mexico in a bottle in the past there as well. So they've been pushing pretty hard, which has been really, really cool to see. Um, yeah, I would say DC, Colorado, yeah. uh, Texas for sure. And Chicago. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And those, um, obviously we got into Austin, uh, last year, DC, two years ago. Uh, you keep mentioning Mexico in a bottle. They're doing some amazing, amazing events. Um, uh, we got to meet those folks like years and years ago. So we're always, we're always reaching out to each other and being like, what, if, what city are you in? What city are you in? Uh, how can we help each other? So it, it's cool. Like, you know, just, I've always noticed when I first did this Arte Agave event, we started in New York like nine years ago and we do other events, right? We do like a whiskey event and it's fun. Yeah. Everyone knows each other and it's good, but the agave category, this culture, it's just more family. It's more friendly. It's more family. It's been more like, I don't know for us, it's been like a little more, everyone's kind of raising this category together sort of thing. And that's why I mentioned yeah, totally. Mexico in a bottle because it was like, we're, I mean, essentially we could be looked at as two competing event producers, but we just always are like, let's get this thing going. Let's, let's push each other's event. Let's promote each other's event. Um, and that's what I always loved about it. And this has always been my favorite event that I've ever done because it just seems to be more of a family kind of gathering, you know, like the whiskey event I do, is just, it, you know, brand reps that know each other, it's cool. But the agave category is just seems to be a little bit different uh, on a little bit of a different level. And I think that's what I always fell in love with it because it's just the passion that people put into tequila and mezcal, the food, the clothing, the music, everything else. Cause people look at me. I mean, you mentioned your background. I'm, I'm pretty white freckly dude. <laughs> and people, people always like, they want to meet the guy who created Arte Agave. And then they see me and they're like, Oh, it's you. And I'm like, yeah, it's me. Um, you know, so, but they always wonder why. And I'm like, I mean, I just fell in love with tequila first and then and mezcal but I fell in love with the people, the entrepreneurs, the artists, because the passion behind it was so much more than anything I was doing. Uh, and I just fell in love with it. I was like, I want to just take this to different cities. And, and, uh, as you mentioned, like Austin was great. DC was, we sold out DC like in like two months. So like that category there, everyone was super excited. And then we also went to Atlanta 
Um, and Atlanta has a nice little buzz uh, on it too for the tequila mezcal category. But it's been uh, it's been fun going to the different cities and seeing. You know, I always I described Atlanta as like New York like six seven years ago. And, you know, New York really had its buzz, and they were all learning. Atlanta starting to like dip their toes into it um, there. So it's cool that you know hopefully you can get back on the road and, and start visiting some of these cities and and uh, some of these some of the people and uh, you know spread the word and spread the love of uh, masculine tequila. Forgive me, I don't recall because uh, our local counterpart did the DC event with you guys last time. Where was what was the venue that you guys had? We did it at the uh, Hamilton Hotel. It was called the uh, there's an event space called the Skyler. Okay. Um, yeah. And they, uh, yeah. So a, a friend of mine, basically we used to work together in New York city at the Bowery hotel where we do Arte Agave in New York. He took over the beverage program down at the Hamilton hotel. And he's like, listen, man, I'd love for you to do your events here. And I was going to do my whiskey event there. We did do the whiskey event there, but I started seeing the event space. I was like, Hey man, can I do the Arte Agave here? And he's like, hell yes, you can. <laughs> um, so we, yeah, we took over, uh, we took over the Skyler, which is a, it's a brand new event space, almost 12,000 square feet, uh, right in DC. Um, and like I said, I, I, you know, going to different cities for us is always hard. Cause it's like, you got to get the word out of who you are, what the event is. You got to sell tickets. Yeah. But it was like, no problem at all. I was just like, where is this coming from? Like people, we just ran a few ads. We had some ticketing partners, 200 people, 300 people, 400 people. I was like, Oh, and they came not just ready to drink, but they came ready to learn. They came ready to discover. They, we had seminars and we, and they were just all of our seminars sold out and our tickets sold out. And I was like, wow, this, this category. Cause when I started nine years ago, I kind of had to beg people to come to my event. <laughs> they were like, yeah, we like tequila, but we don't really know much about it. It wasn't many mezcal brands nine, 10 years ago. Um, you know, we try to get mezcal brands in the room and they're like, listen, man, I don't even have enough liquid to put in my bottles. I can't even, you know, I don't even have enough to pour for sampling, but you know, nine, 10 years later, we're like off and running, uh, and, and people can't get enough. They just want more and more tequila and more and more mezcal. Uh, it's pretty exciting. Pretty exciting. Uh, last question I'll ask you, sorry, yeah. to, sorry to flip, sorry to flip the script on you a little Bring bit. It. Uh, um, uh, what I'm curious how you decided to pick Atlanta. Yeah, so I have um, it's like kind of a difficult with the with, with the still spirits is a little bit it can be a little bit tricky sometimes because of like the way that they do distribution and stuff. So yep. I'm, really, I, I, I'm really stoked that you guys are doing that because it's always seemed to be an underrepresented market, you know. I agree. Um, especially with, with what I do. I I talk to my counterparts and it's not always at the top of people's list for like places they have to get to. I love it. But it's not always necessarily the one where I have, like have to get to if I have three or four trips that I can take. You know what I mean? Yep. So there, there's a couple of things. One, I know a couple of the, you know, I know a couple of the bigger brands down there. They're yeah. represented. So it's always, and people are always like, oh, you got the big brand there. I'm like, well, it helps to pay you for to, everything yeah. that I'm doing. So yeah. I know a couple of people there. And then again, there's another hotel that we did it at. Um, it's a hotel. It's a sim, uh, called um, uh, Sylvan, Hotel Sylvan. Uh, oh, yeah. Yep. So we're down there and, and another buddy of mine who I worked with back in the day, he now runs that hotel. They just opened up about a year and a half ago. And he's like, listen, man, I love your event. It's really cool. He's like, can you host it here? And I was like, you know, I was like, maybe because he was like, listen, I want the community. I want what you bring in. I want locals. I want chefs. I want, I want, I want this hotel in this area to be known as like a cool local spot, not just, you know, rented out for a, for a wedding or something. Um, so for me as an event producer, it's always hard to find a venue in a new city. You know what I mean? So that's like the hardest thing is like, 
because you go to a new venue and they're like, well, our minimum is $50,000 plus, plus, plus. And you're like, I'm not, yeah. I'm not a corporate client. I am, I'm an event producer. You know, I'm not trying to get rich, but I do want to make some money here or at least cover my costs. So there was, there was two factors there. Um, and then what I try to do is I try to get not just, you know, I always scour the, 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 you know, the United States for where to go. And then it's like, you know, there's events in Chicago and there's events in LA and there's events in New York. And it's like, it's almost saturated. Oh, so yeah. to me, I went to visit Atlanta and I just started talking to the bartenders and I was like, Oh, and as I mentioned before, I'm like, there's a little bit of a buzz here. Like th- to me, it did remind me of New York six, seven years ago because all the bartenders were, there's a bunch of brands behind the bars that I was like, I don't even know that that brand is. And the bartenders knew about it, but they're excited about it. So I'm like, Oh, this is a growing city. So I wanted to plant my flag early. Cause I feel like in two, three, four years, People are going to be like, mm, we got to get to Atlanta. We got to get to Atlanta. So it was, I knew a few people. I knew that I knew the person who ran the hotel. Plus there was a little bit of buzz there. And like I said, for me, year one and two, when I do events, I, I don't really make money. I just try to get my money back. Yeah. Um, but I think there's going to be something come. And I want to, I want to kind of plant my flag there. So in two, three, four years, I feel like Atlanta is going to be a city that's going to take off. Um, and I want people to be like, oh, we got to do that Arte Agave event. Um, there. So I, I just don't like to go to cities where there's, you know, even when I do my whiskey events, I'm like, my God, is there like 74 whiskey festivals in New York city? You know what I mean? It's like over and over, there seems to be so much, so much in so many, in the same cities. And we just try to, we try to, we try to get to the cities that not everybody's in and it's not the most financially, you know, viable for me, but I, I don't have any partners. I don't have any investors. It's just my money. So if we don't make any money in Atlanta, we had fun. We enjoyed it. And we're looking for the next two, three, four years to come. Um, we're kind of playing the long game with those cities. I think that's one of the things I love about this category too, is that it leads you to places that you might not necessarily visit as much with some of the other spirit categories. You know, and I think that factors in a little bit more with kind of like secondary markets to a certain extent. But I think, like you said, you know, the energy is different. The, 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 yeah, I guess that's the only way to put it is that the energy is a little bit different the crowd is a little bit different. And for me, it also, again, it leads me to different places in the U S and other parts of the world that I wouldn't necessarily visit if I was, if I was maybe working in some other, in some, in another category where I really had to focus on some other, what we call key markets, you know? Yeah. And Atlanta's huge. There's a lot of people there. You know what I mean? It's not like a small city. Um, you know, so it's, it's just one of those things that some, some of these cities just get overlooked. Um, and it's hard because there's not a lot of brand representation there. Um, yeah. so people do events, you know, like the local person, the distributor is like, we don't even really have a market manager here. So it's hard to get that brand, um, there. But to me, it's, it's, you know, we've been doing the event in New York so much that people, we almost get so many repeat guests that they're like, this is year eight for me. This is year seven for me, oh, yeah. so, which is awesome. But at the same time, it's nice to go to a new city where they don't know what this event's going to be. Cause I always love have you you've been to our events and very experiential. We have pop-up performances all over the place. We like, we like you to take an hour and a half to get from one end to the other end. Um, and in new cities, it's exciting when people do that because they come in, they're like, Oh, I didn't think it was going to be this. You know, they hear the music, they see the performances, they see this, they see that the stilt walkers. And there's so many things to discover. That's what I really love to do. So that's why I like to find these cities that are not really used to it. And then we yeah. find the locals and they're like, yeah, we don't really have anything like this here. I'm like, okay, let's do it here. Like I said, it's financially first couple of years in these cities is nothing for me, but 
um, it's it's nice because the consumer feedback is always great. And then the brand's like, oh, this is cool. Let's look into this next year and we're going to figure it out how to do it. Same thing in Texas too, man. You know, mm -hmm. as much mezcal and agave spirits as Texas puts out, there haven't been that many like experiential events the way that you guys do Arte Agave in Texas, you know? And I think yeah. to a certain extent, I think it could be, again, going back to like the distribution model and stuff that exists in those states, it's a little bit difficult to put on events like that. But other categories have figured it out. And a lot of times maybe it just takes a lot of money to put that on or whatever. But I'm very glad that you guys have committed to like putting stuff on the ground, especially since I lived there for, you know, five or six years. My diet has a certain place in my heart. Um, so I'm really, really glad that you guys, I, I live in Austin and Houston and both of those places are just so incredible. Yeah. Austin, Austin's a blast, man. And, um, a lot, a lot of fun. The people there are amazing. It's incredible. And I mean, obviously people are flocking to Austin <laughs> these, <laughs> these days. Um, but yeah, it, and it, it takes a lot too. Cause it's like, we, I always said, you know, I worked for brands back in the day. I was a bartender for 20 years. Um, and I'd always go to these events and they're always like, there's like two events. There's like kind of the boring one where you just walk around and sample it's fine. Like that's an educational thing. Great. And then there's like the drunken shit show where everyone's just hammered. Um, so I like to try to kind of find that little hybrid of like, I want to learn, I want to talk, I want to, I want to get educated, yeah. but I also want to have fun. You know what I mean? So I try to, I, each event that I do, especially with Arte Gave is something that I want to go to. I want, you know, I don't want just a buffet. I want some local chefs. I want some music. I want some culture. I want to learn, but I also want to, I want to dance. You know what I mean? Like I want to, I want to feel the vibrant of it. Um, instead of just sitting down kind of learning for three hours. So basically the, these Arte Agave events are a reflection of like what I want to go to um, kind of selfishly. It's, it's created for, for what I want to hang out to. That's the other thing that I love about Agave Spirits too, is, is, is contrasting against these other spirit categories. Yeah. The, the knowledge base for most consumers is so much smaller and yep. there's so much more to learn that I think it helps strike that balance because yep. people are coming into it very um, ignorant to what all this is. So they're very amped to learn about it. So I think it, 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 it kind of keeps them in line to a certain extent, a little bit longer through the night than it would maybe if it was like a whiskey event or something like that. Yep. Uh, whereas they're like, okay, I already know about whiskey. So let me just try all this different stuff. Yeah. But there's so much more to learn with agave spirits that I think it really helps people embrace the, the more um, informational side of things. I agree, man. It kind of slows people down drinking too. We always try to keep people as sober as possible at these events, but water station to. gotta have water stations, man. We try events. to. We try to. How many events I go to, and it's just like you guys didn't think to put water out, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Food and water goes a long way. All right, man. Well, let's right. say a few minutes. Um, what do you what are you eating and drinking these days? Are you just are you just, are you sipping things neat? You put it put it in a cocktail. What what's what's uh. What do you enjoy? How are you enjoying your tequila mezcal and your food these days? Um, tequila and mezcal, yeah, pretty much neat. Um, yeah. I don't really have a home bar necessarily, and I don't really like um, citrus. Like, I don't like shaking mm. drinks that much yeah. with agave, in general and with agave spirits particularly. Yep. So I don't mix that much when I'm at home. So if I'm drinking spirits, it's usually neat. And I don't go out to cocktail bars that much when I'm home because I just do it so much on the road that it's just kind of when I'm home, yeah. I want to, I want to just kind of keep it mellow. So, um, usually tend to sip on things neat. Um, my wife, my wife is a, uh, is a wine writer. So we always have some interesting, cool wine samples around the house. So I kind of mix that into the, try and get that into the mix. And then I also, um, when I was in Austin, when I met Judah, actually, 
we met because I was working at a Spanish restaurant and he was really into sherry and I'm really into sherry. So that's the other thing I drink too is uh, sherry. And then um, as far as food goes, really trying to dive into, um, I mean, not to sound cliche, but trying to dive a little bit more into Mexican food, like um, yeah. salsas in particular, mm. um, salsas and other sauces uh, right yeah. now. It's kind of what I'm what I'm cooking a lot at home, like uh, getting more into mole and stuff like that, and uh, grains like uh, corn and beans. Getting geeking out about corn and beans and stuff like that, um, milpa stuff basically uh, that you would grow out in the in the hills um, are the things that I'm cooking a lot of right now. Uh, Tucson has a lot of really great, incredible food, but it dives pretty hard into Sonoran food, mm-hmm. so understandably so. So if I want to get kind of my uh, like Michoacan or, or Oaxacan food on, I kind of have to do it myself at home. So that's given me the drive to experiment a little bit more in the kitchen for sure. Awesome, man. Well, listen, I appreciate your time here. Um, oh, if, if people want to find uh, you, uh, if you want to share your Instagram or the brand's Instagram or, or yeah. uh, website, we'd love to hear how can people find find the brands, find you, share all that sure. stuff. So yeah, uh, Mezcal Vago on Instagram. We don't really use Twitter at all. Uh, Facebook as well. We have our Facebook page, but as as most other uh, brands are going these days, it's pretty much Instagram. Same thing with Tequila Ocho. It was a little bit confusing because there was like several different Tequila Ocho Instagram uh, mm-hmm. pages to tag, so you never quite knew if you were tagging the right one. That's just going to be Tequila Ocho going forward, so that'll be a little bit easier for people gotcha. to tag us, let us know what vintages you're drinking, what fields, and stuff like that. And then my own personal Instagram is uh, Cisco Bond with Bond, um, all one, no under, no underscores or anything like that. Uh, really straightforward. And uh, yeah, feel free to ask me any questions you all have. Tag me when you drink any Bago or Ocho. If you have a question, I'll be happy to jump on there and uh, and answer it. So awesome, man. Well, listen, I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your support at Arte Agave, man. It's really cool, and we look forward to working with you guys all again um, this year, man. So so thanks for doing this. Thank you. Hope to see you guys uh, October, right? 20-something? October 14th in Austin. In Austin. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds good, man. Take care of yourself. All right. Right on, brother. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Appreciate you.